This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And folks, got to let you know, now, a couple weeks ago, I gave myself credit for playing hurt, saying that I had the world's worst allergy attacks that day. But Sam has come off of his sickbed to join us for today's podcast. Uh, he's had, like, some kind of rare tropical ear disease where some, like, it was mangoes <laughs> growing out of his ear or so. I don't know what, man. It's a, You sound terrible, Sam. Yeah, I'm more nasally than normal. It's 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 intense. So it's this thing started with some kind of a cold, and I thought I was just congested, but I'm convinced now that this congestion or ear infection has ruptured an eardrum, and so now I'm. <laughs> oh my goodness! My my left ear is not happening very well. Oh wow! Uh, well, hopefully. Interesting. Hopefully, you just need one ear to hear me. So as long yeah, as that's, right. as long as that's the case, then, then that's like the Monty Python. But you only have one leg. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a flesh wound. Yeah, that's yeah. That's well. That's how it is. The podcast must go on. Um, but so we're here with the week two of our Life of Peter series, um, and this week we're going to be talking about what is really an iconic. Uh, story from the life of Jesus and the life of Peter, and that is Jesus walking on water. Um, and that's one, Sam, where I think that people hear it told in, you know, that Jesus walked on water has become part of the American lexicon. You know, it's like mm-hmm. even people that don't really believe that Jesus was the Son of God, even people that don't believe Jesus existed will use that phrase like, oh, you know, walking on water. You don't walk on water, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. So it's become part of the lexicon of American I don't know, slang or idioms. And I think that to the extent that people forget that there were two people that walked on water that day. Yeah. Yeah. It was Jesus and Peter. And one of the, I mean, we're, we're not wrong when we say, you know, walking on water to attribute that as something that's divine. I mean, it's like, what do you think you walk on water? Right. Um, You're basically saying, what do you think you're God? And there's, there's something to that and that I think we take away from this, you know, and, and when Jesus does it, it reveals who he is. I think the more shocking thing is that Peter does it. Right. One of the things that, that will come out as we start talking about Peter, and I started sort of formulating this line of thought last week when we, when we launched this series, and I talked about Peter being, you know, like maybe Andrew's older brother, you know, mm-hmm. that he was kind of the settled guy in the family. He was married, probably, probably had kids. Um, but seemed to be the guy that was in charge. You know, when, when Jesus came up, you know, last week we had the calling and Jesus came up and sat in the boat and it was Peter that said, okay, we'll go out. And then Jesus asked Peter to put the nets down. Well, that wasn't just Peter. There were other people involved in putting those mm-hmm. nets down. And so Peter made the decision. I'll put them down. And when the, when the nets began to break, it was Peter who summoned. The, it's like, you just get the feeling that Peter's in charge and, um, you know, I do this to you every week, folks. I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. In our next podcast episode, which is not the one today, um, which is the one where the uh, uh, Peter's confession, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Who do, who do men say I am? That's another iconic story. And, and we'll be talking about that in our next episode. But as part of that, I'm going to suggest when we get there that Peter goes into full-on dad mode with Jesus. <laughs> and I think that I'm going to want to say that to some extent, I think that Peter had that sort of dad mode instinct, like Peter saw himself as the guy who was responsible to make sure everything worked okay, mm-hmm. as the guy who was in charge. Um, and I know, again, I'm reading in here, but there's just little things I'm picking up from stories from the life of Peter where I'm like, I see a guy here who believes like he has to be the responsible one. Mm-hmm. And he is always quick to speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, he's going to throw his thought out there in a hurry to try to fix it or to, to throw his hat in the ring. Right. To be the one leading yeah. always. Yeah. Sometimes before he thinks. Yes. Very well. And see, now, as somebody who's been a father, my, my children are 26. My oldest is 26. As someone who's been a father for almost three decades, I will tell you that the impulse to engage mouth before brain is fully in the process <laughs> yeah. is something that happens far too often, you know. Um, <laughs> 
there are there are times and and I and everybody who's a parent, regardless of your you know whether it's mother or father, everybody who is a parent can relate to this. There's that moment where you're saying something to your children, and it's almost like you can see the words leaving your mouth, traveling to their ears, and you're wishing you could pull them back. And you're yeah. like, you're like, oh no, no, that's not no. what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, you know, the dad mode involves uh, a little bit of that. So, well, let's look at our passage, which is in Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, um, and it starts here. It says, immediately he, that's Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And that's the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is Mm -hmm. miles across. So this would be, this wasn't like, you know, go wait outside, go wait in the car in the parking lot, I'll be outside in a minute. (laughs) Jesus was was sending them on a bit of a journey here Mm -hmm. to the other side of the Sea of Galilee while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, verse 23, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So the crowds here um, that were taking place, if you'll see just before this, before verse 22, was the the famous feeding of the 5,000. So this Mm -hmm. was a crowd that was really eager to hang on to Jesus and to stay with Jesus because Jesus had just done something in their sight that was that was miraculous and amazing and something that really showed that he was divine. He mm-hmm. he fed 5000 people from a handful of food. So the first thought that occurred to me Sam as I begin reading this is that this probably wasn't an easy thing to get to happen. Like to send the crowd away probably was no small feat. You know, getting yeah. getting off by himself probably took some doing. Yeah, and and they're relentless. And this is coming at a point, and I think part of this is why Jesus needs this alone time, is if you go back and you're looking at context of when all this happens, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 14, Jesus has just learned that his greatest advocate, you know, John the Baptist, who is the one who is pointing all people to him, his cousin, has died. He's been beheaded. And so Jesus, I mean, he's a very real person. He's dealing with the grief and trauma of that. Then the crowds are coming on him. It's like he has no time to process anything personally. He's constantly serving. And we see that he feeds them and they follow him from place to place. If if you read the, the parallel passage of John 6, you know, Jesus calls out the crowd saying, you know, you're coming to me just to be fed. You don't you don't believe in who I am. You're not seeing me as the bread of life. You're just coming to fill your stomachs for a moment. Right. So he's got all these competing uh, anxieties or I don't know what you would call them, but like stresses on demands him. On, demands on his time. People just wanting his yeah, time. Yeah, demands right? on his time. I mean, the bandwidth of Jesus in the flesh is like running to full capacity. And at this moment, he's like, okay, I need to dismiss the crowds. And he tells his disciples, you go away, <laughs> you, get, you get out on the, on the lake, and I'm going to send the crowds away personally. And he does so, and right. then it says he goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. I think it's interesting, too, because um, the subject of prayer, I think, is one that a lot of Christians will will wrestle with to some extent. One of the most common things that I hear from people who are talking about their walk with the Lord is, I, you know, my prayer life could be better. You just hear that a lot. You hear people talk about, I, I really struggle with finding time and a place to pray, to be consistent in prayer. And I think sometimes it's because we feel like it's the least immediate need. It's like okay, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't avoid going to church because if I avoid going to church, people are going to miss me at being in church. If I don't show up, someone's going to call and say, "Hey, where mm-hmm. are you?" Um, and if I don't, you know, there's certain things that you have to do that are visible that people and and, and prayer is one of those things that we do principally on our own. And so there are times when we get to that point where, like, I, you know, I just don't feel like it's like, oh, God understands. And yet, you look here at the example that Jesus gives us, which is, what was his greatest need when his bandwidth, as you say, was running full max here, when, when his, you know, his capacity as a human, because he was fully human, mm-hmm. was, was he could do no more, what he needed to do was get off by himself and pray. Um, yeah. I just think that's powerful, really, really powerful. Yeah, I can I can remember reading some commentaries from from famous pastors and preachers, and you'll hear some version of this that your personal prayer life is the true indicator of your spiritual health. Like you can you can dress up your life with lots of acts of service, you can dress up your life with knowing the Bible really well, you know, you can put on a demonstration, but how much time you spend in prayer 
as a genuine, authentic indication of how much you personally enjoy God. Right. And that is the and and that's convicting, you it know, because because I don't give the Lord even a smidgen of what He deserves from me. Right. Um, but I can also tell you, you know, like Jesus, you know, He's coming to the end of His bandwidth, and He sends people away, and He's He's getting alone time with the Lord. And you know, we should see prayer as something that's that's almost selfish in, mm-hmm. in some sense, because what we get out of it, that time with God, when we realize who we are and that all the world circumstances that are coming at us that make us feel like we're overwhelmed, when we stand in front of him and remember who we are because of who he is and what he's done for us, it strengthens us for everything we can face. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it restores us. It renews us. Um and it and it's a chance to go and remember what's precious in this life, right. as opposed to being totally overwhelmed by all the the nonsense that's buzzing around. I mean, would you agree with this that that when we if what we say is I just don't have time to pray, that's the time it's most important to pray. Yeah. If yeah, you feel sure. like you have no time to pray, that's the time that you really really need to be praying. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I think too that's that is interesting here because I've I've heard people say this about prayer. Um, is well, God knows what I'm. God knows what I'm. My thoughts. God knows. God already knows. God knows what I'm getting ready to pray for. So why do I have to pray for it? And that's a rationalization that some people have employed. It's like, sure, well, I, I feel. It. You know, it's like I. I feel awkward praying because God already knows this stuff, and I'm thinking, here you have an example where you're talking about Jesus, who was the Son of God. And so, you know, now he, he was, he had voluntarily limited himself in his humanity in certain respects. But if anybody knows the mind of God better than the God himself, I'm like, who, you know, it's like, this is the one guy who really knows what God knows, you know, mm-hmm. and, and yet still he needed to be off by himself and spend time in concentrated prayer with his father. So, um, I just, you know, just picture this, folks. If there's a, if there's a moment where you think how important prayer is, Look at what Jesus did in this case. Yeah. One of the things that helped me in, in prayer is there's so many people are intimidated by prayer because you think, you know, you have a, you have to do certain things and you have to be good at it. And prayer really boils down to just spending time with the Lord. I mean, mm-hmm. and that can come in a, in a multitude of ways. You know, prayer can be just, you know, singing songs sure. to the Lord and worship. It can be reading out of prayer books. People have done that for centuries. Right. Um, but one of the other things that I I never realized until I stopped and, and read a book by Brother Lawrence that's centuries old called Practicing the Presence of God. Excellent, excellent, excellent book, by the way. Oh, man, it's amazing. I, I'm so jealous of that guy. And it's short. So if you don't like reading long books, you can find this online in a PDF probably. It's really wonderful. Yeah, it's public domain. Yeah. So this guy... Well, he washed dishes in a monastery, and people used to come and visit just to watch him because he found such joy in being present with the Lord. And so, you know, one of the things that you walk away realizing in that is you don't have to be sitting on your knees with your arms, you know, hands crossed and eyes closed, you know, reciting something to the Lord for that to qualify as prayer. Prayer is just communing with the Lord consciously. So it's, you know, when you're when you're doing anything during your day, constantly being aware that the Lord is with you and that you're doing it for him to please him. I mean, in a sense, that is prayer. So when the Bible comes to us and says that you're to pray without ceasing, which it does. Right. It doesn't mean that you're never to get off your knees. Right. <laughs> you, you know, it never you're constantly vomiting words at the Lord. No, it's it's this awareness of his presence. And so the, the image, the picture that I give is, you know, my wife and I, Laura, we'll walk around the neighborhood, you know, we, at nighttime, and we may go a, a block, two, have great conversations, go another three, four blocks, have great conversations, and then go two blocks where we're not saying anything at all, but we're holding hands. And we're communicating a lot, even though we're not saying a word mm-hmm. it's it's that kind of understanding of the lord's presence that's communion with him mm-hmm. it's an awareness of his presence with you that is prayer and so it's it's a discipline to adjust your mind to recognize that he is always with you mm-hmm. um, and you are always with him he's always watching your everything you do is communicating mm-hmm. to him um and that's and that's powerful but in yeah. this case jesus is pulling himself away 
to give one-on-one time with the Lord, which is, you know, Jesus never stopped praying, but in this sense, it's time away from everything else to give 100% of his bandwidth to the Lord. Right. And that's, that's precious time. So while he's doing this, out on the, uh, out on the lake, things are getting crazy. <laughs> Verse 24, it, tells, it says, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. And the Greek there just says many stadia. Um, and a stadion in Greek measurement was about 600 feet. So uh, the most commentators and experts think that they were, you know, two, three miles out. Uh, so they'd been, they're way out in the middle of nowhere. And something to think about here, folks, when, when it says they're a long way from the land, you know, we think of them as being on this small body of water. Um, it's a big, it's an inland sea, but it's a big body of water. And when you get several miles out from land, you can't see the land anymore. Um, and it also says that they were beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. They were fighting this terrible storm. Mm-hmm. Um, verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So just to kind of set the picture here, <laughs> fourth watch of the night was sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. That's a, that's a Roman military term, the fourth watch mm-hmm. of the night. And uh, so it's dark. And, and the other thing, too. It's like, oh, well, they could see the lights. No, they can't see the – there's no lights yeah, on no. shore. It's the first century. <laughs> you know, it's like if there was light, it was like a candle or a lamp, and that's not going to go miles out to sea. Mm-hmm. So there's they're out in the absolute dark. I mean, there could be stars and moon. I don't know how brightly lit the night was. But if it's if there's a storm that's raging like that where they're beaten by the waves and the wind was against them, chances are it's probably also overcast. So I'm going out on the limb here, Samuel. I'm saying it was dark. That boat was getting <laughs> pounded, and mm-hmm. they'd been out there for a while. I mean, at this point, they'd probably been rowing for six, seven, eight, nine hours. Yeah. I mean, it says when evening came, he sends them. So you know, it's it's right at nightfall, so put it 6 p.m., 7 p.m., they're getting into a boat, and it's after 3 a.m. that this is, you know, we're brought to this point. Right. And so they've been rowing against the wind for hours and hours and hours and hours, struggling to make any progress to get across this this sea. And, you know, like you said, this, this storm is so raging you got to imagine that if they're all sky, all the stars, moonlight, all of it is obscured by the storm. There's no lights on, on the shore. So you're out in the dark. You have no idea what kind of progress you've made. You don't know where you are. You don't know how mm-hmm. far you have to swim. You're already exhausted. And by, by the way, when, when we go to Israel on the trip with the church, I've been twice now, one of the places you go that's really fascinating is there's a museum that's right on the, the Sea of Galilee, which is largely untouched. It's really beautiful. They've kept it pristine. But in this museum, they uncovered a first century fishing boat right at this village, which is right where these disciples would have been. And it's a 27-foot boat that when you look at it, you think to yourself, there is no way I'm getting in that boat. <laughs> you know, Because you still see the construction. And it's it looks like tree limbs yeah. just kind of haphazardly thrown together and i mean if i'm in a vicious storm i don't want to be in that boat yeah. <laughs> you know like give me the fiberglass one but that one that looks like it's going to fall apart at any moment and that that word beaten by the waves the greek is bazanitso and it's the only times most of the time it's used in the new testament is it's literally tortured mm. So like when the demons are asking Jesus, are you going, are you the one, are you going, is it time for you to cast us into hell and torture us? It's that word. It's you know, a woman in the worst part of childbirth, mm. Bazanitso. So it's like this boat is under extreme duress right. by these waves. It's, it's being tortured in some sense. So if you're uncomfortable with that picture, ladies and gentlemen, as you're listening, if you're thinking, wow, that's really, really rough, I want you to think about this. They were exactly where Jesus wanted them to be at that moment. Mm-hmm. That's the part about this that is so, to me, so significant, is that Jesus compelled them, it says. He, he, he pushed them, essentially, into the boat and said, go to the other side. He mm-hmm. knew when he did that what storm was going to come up against them. Jesus sent mm-hmm. them to the midst of this storm, and he sent them there for a reason. And there are times when 
That same thing is true in our lives. It's like we find ourselves in the middle of the storm. We are miles from anywhere. We can't, we don't know. We've been struggling against this for as long as we can remember. We don't know where we are in the process. We don't know where to turn next. We can't see anything. We feel blind by everything that's going on around us. And we have to stop for a second and say, I am where God wants me to be. As hard as it is for us to mm-hmm. feel like a loving God would put us here, he does. And we're going to see why, you know, here in just a second. But they were where Jesus wanted them to be. Mm-hmm. And they're there because they were obedient, not disobedient. Correct. You know, you know Correct. and that's that's part of it. Because, you know, I can, I can say, you know, in my disobedience, God is still sovereign over everything in my life. You know, if I make a mess of something, he's still sovereignly weaving it together ultimately for his glory and my good, somehow in this divine mystery of God. But in this case, they're there because they obeyed. Yep. You know, and so often when we find ourselves with the boat being tortured and not knowing where we are, we think, what did, what did I do? Right. You know, right. what did I do to earn this? And G- Jesus in this very situation is showing us that the storm comes to them, not because they did something wrong, but because he's, because they were obedient mm-hmm. and he's going to show them something precious. Yeah. And that's what he shows them. Verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, not reassured, terrified, and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. And then the King James, be of good cheer. It's like, you know, not just have courage, but be, you know, be happy to see me. It is I. Do not be afraid. And uh, when I was working this through for personal worship and putting the notes together, I made a note, and it actually it's one of the reflection questions, why do you think the disciples didn't recognize Jesus? And I think that, first of all, it was, as we just mentioned, it was a horrific situation. They were exhausted. It was dark. They were getting pounded by the waves in every possible way. But I would also say they didn't recognize Jesus walking on the water because they weren't looking for Jesus at that point. And and that's the other part of it, other application for me is when I find myself in the middle of that storm, like you said, Sam, the first thought that comes to my mind is what did I do? <laughs> and then once we get past that point of, okay, maybe God's got something for me here, we have to remember to start looking for God in the middle of the storm because that's what he gave them. He gave them himself. He's like, here's why I don't want you to be afraid because it's me. I'm with you. He didn't shut the storm down yet. He just walked out and said, I'm here. <laughs> Which, when they see him, should be enough. Because right. this is this is the second time they've been on the, the on this sea in the middle of a storm. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 8, there's the story where Jesus is asleep in the boat and a storm comes. And it's a massive, nasty storm, which would have been common in the Sea of Galilee. You may have heard people talk about this before, but the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountain ridges on every side. And so the quick change in elevation of warm air and cool air passing one another creates these storms on the sea that can that can be pretty pretty vicious. And so Jesus, in that case, is asleep in the boat, and they're like, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. They wake him up, and he looks at the storm and says, peace, be still. And the storm goes quiet. But this time, Jesus is not in the boat, right. which is another reason why it's even scarier. But they're not they're not looking for him. You know, in my mind's eye, like, I think of, like, lightning flashes, and they see something out on the water, yeah. and they're waiting for the next light flash to, to see him again. And they're like, okay, things are not supposed to be on top of the water. No, <laughs> I, I, they don't. They don't say it's a ghost because they're they're you know Neanderthal don't believe in science people. They're they're saying that because nothing is supposed to be able to walk on the water. They believe in science, um, but they're thinking, what could that possibly be? Uh, it must be some kind of ghost or phantasm or something, right? And so they're they're absolutely terrified of what this is going to be. Now the Greek word here in verse 27 what jesus actually says that what's recorded him saying is ego i me i am yeah how i mean that's how powerful is that to a group of jewish men in a boat scared to hear somebody say i am that's (laughs) you know that's that's god i mean you know he's basically telling them in that that god is with you i'm Mm -hmm. with you uh and i think that that's the 
you know, the number one thing about this storm and the, and this other story that you uh, referenced from Matthew 8, which is also a really good story, uh, although perhaps not so specifically focused on Peter. So we're not having that in our series here, but it's still a great story because, again, the point, the reason that they should not have been afraid then was that Jesus was with them. Mm-hmm. And the reason that Jesus is giving them here to not be afraid is that I am. I'm with you. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing that uh, when we find ourselves in that storm and and the first, like you say, the first impulse is, did I do something? Because that's just human nature. We think I'm being punished. No, God's not punishing me. But this is why God, this is where, this is what God wants to happen to me. God wants me to go through this. This is God's plan for me right now. And what God wants us to do is to begin looking for him in the middle of the storm, because mm-hmm. the one thing he's promised us is that he will be with us in the storm. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this combination, and, and you, you brought this out in the, the personal worship notes, but this combination of commands and statements, you find the Lord speaking to his people, this combination all throughout the scriptures. So it's be courageous. I will be with you. Do not be afraid. That combination of statements is it's it's when God calls Moses at the very beginning, and Moses is like, "Ha oh, ha! You want me to go and and confront Pharaoh, the the, the most powerful empire in the world?" You know? <laughs> I don't talk so good, God. <laughs> <laughs> what does God say? He's like, "Yeah, I'm, you're not going to be the one who's impressive in this case, Moses." I'm going to go with you. Don't be afraid. Yeah. Or when Joshua's on the other side of the Jordan and he's got to go in and drive out these these tribes that have been warring tribes and trained in war and battle-hardened, and he's going with a bunch of escaped slaves and the next generation. And what does God say? He repeats it. You know, I want you to be courageous. Right. Don't be afraid. I'm going with you. Right. Um, and you, you go through all the scriptures and you will find that again and again and again where God says, I want you to do something that is unbelievably terrifying, daunting, huge task. It's amazing. At first glance, you're going to think that this is utterly impossible, but I want you to be courageous. Right. Because. I go with you. Right. Do not be afraid. Yeah, that was uh, Joshua one nine is one of the verses that I really like. There's several mm-hmm. verses that I like from Joshua. Joshua twenty four fifteen is another one. Choose you this day whom you will serve. That's another. There's there's a. <laughs> we need to do a study on Joshua sometime, and just mm-hmm. you and I should just go through Joshua, and th- that is such an amazing book and story. But yeah, I love that story. Um, but at any rate, uh, in Joshua chapter one verse nine, one of my favorite verses, and we had this in personal worship this week. He says, "Have I not commanded you, God talking to Joshua?" Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Um, so that's uh, that was the reason that he gave Joshua to be, you know, to be strong and to not be afraid. It's not, don't worry. Look, I'm going to spell out for you what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you how these escaped slaves are going to be triumphant. I'm going to talk to you about the kind of success and victory. He doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. He just says, I'm going to be with you. Yeah. I mean, and, and you think, I mean, fast forward to the Great Commission, where you have Jesus, who's, you know, risen from the dead, who is about to ascend into heaven, and he is about to leave behind these 11 remaining faithful, <laughs> 11, right. notice that, remaining faithful apostles. And he says, okay, now here's your mission, even though most of you are former fishermen, poor, uneducated, not well-respected in the world, you don't have a huge reputation, you're going to <laughs> conquer nations with the gospel. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't say, okay, here's the battle plan, and here's this, that, and the other, and this is how you're going to do it, and here's my speech that I want you to deliver. No, it's it's you're, you're to go to the ends of the earth. You're to teach the nations the things that I've commanded you. You're to baptize them. And then what? how does he give them an assurance that they will be successful? As he says, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. And right. that is the guarantee of success. Right. It has nothing to do with Peter or Andrew or John, even though they do amazingly uh, faithful things for the sake of the gospel. It is absolutely in the fact that the Lord went with them mm-hmm. everywhere they went. So at this point in our story, we have uh, the disciples in the boat 
terrified by the storm, battered, weary, tired. Jesus speaks to them and says, take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. And Peter is the first to speak. You just picture the whole the, the, re- <laughs> the rest of them are just like basically, you know, <laughs> they're just cowering in the boat. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He, Jesus, said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Um, I find it interesting that Peter didn't just automatically get out of the boat. <laughs> you know, it's not like he jumped out of the boat going, oh, I got to run to Jesus. But he asked Jesus to command him. So there's this whole idea of command, God's mm-hmm. command, at his command. God's The covenant was that we would keep his commandments and statutes to walk in them. So, um, you know, there's a lot about God's command, you know. Yeah. Well, and what we want to do is we want to say, like, if, if I'm Peter and I have this thought, it's going to be, okay, Lord, can you first calm these winds, yep. you know, yep. and, and maybe take this little piece of water here and freeze it so that I understand that my foot's going to, like, land on something, um, but one of the things when Peter says, if it's you command me to come to you on the water that I love is, is Peter is saying, if I'm going to do this, I want you to command me because I know there is safety in your command. Mm-hmm. If you command me to do something, I know, you, I know I'm okay when right. I do it. Right. Even when it doesn't make sense, like stepping out onto the water, <laughs> onto onto water that at the that is going absolutely bonkers at the moment. You know? yeah. It's like they're just yeah. it's crazy that you can't see. I mean, it would have been utterly terrifying. It yeah. really would have been. Yeah, that was Peter's first desire was to be with the Lord, but to know, but to have God first to command him. Uh, to come to him. And and then Jesus does that because he wants Peter to understand exactly what you just said, which Peter knows that if he f- obeys God's command, he will be safe. And Jesus wants Peter to know that. I mean, that's, I asked that question in, in personal worship and you just answered it. That was one of the reflection questions, which is, why did Peter ask Jesus to command him? Because he knew he would be safe when Peter, if he obeyed the command of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And why did Jesus then command him was the response question. Because Jesus wanted Peter to know he would be safe also. Um, it was, this is really kind of a beautiful moment. It's like yeah. a really, really amazing moment between Jesus and this disciple that Jesus, you know, loves and cares for so much. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a something Peter's going to learn right at this moment, which is, just exactly that. If, if I do what Jesus commands me to do, I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Jesus knows that Peter is a work in progress. Oh, yeah. And he's, you know, I love how he's just teaching him in all these little moments where Peter's going to continually stumble. Like It's like the fact that there are these stumbles. I love that the Bible is honest enough to come to us with them. Like you see Peter wanting to do something great again and again and again. He'll do the right thing in part and then screw it up somehow in all of these stories right mm-hmm. at the end. And the Lord is just incessantly, relentlessly coming after him to pick him up and encourage him to keep growing in his faith. It's really wonderful. Right. Well, and let's uh, let's read about what happens then here. Um, so Peter has climbed out of the boat. He's walked on the water. He's come to Jesus, verse 30. But when he, Peter, saw the wind... Um, <laughs> again, I keep, I keep wanting to go back and quote my, my King James, New King James. The, the phrase they say, the wind, which was boisterous. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a good word. Boisterous wind is a good translation. So, uh, when he saw the wind, he was. But how do you see wind? I mean, that you gotta right. imagine. What is it saying there? Like these, these waves are white capping and the mist or something is just raging, blowing off of these things. Like you're looking at the wind because it is causing havoc on the sea. Right. Like you're seeing crazy wind. You're seeing the effects that the wind is having for sure. Mm-hmm. So it says, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? And that's something that I, we, we landed on this for a day during personal worship to talk about this. And I said, because mm-hmm. to I think to our 21st century American ears, when we hear, oh, you of little faith, 
Why did you doubt? We feel like Jesus is criticizing Peter, and there may be some chastisement there, you know, or, or at least a question. Didn't you learn anything from the last time when I was well, you when you were okay? But I I asked people in the in the study notes to think about what that little faith did. That little faith, and I'm doing air quotes here, you can't see it, folks. This is a podcast, but I'm doing air quotes. That little faith caused a man to get out of a, a perfectly, I say a perfectly safe boat, the safest place he had at the moment in the middle of this terrible storm, in the middle of the pitch black, in the middle of the night, and and step out on water. I'm like, okay, so if that's little faith, what's the size of your faith? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, I understand that, you know, and, and then the other thing, too, is to think about that, you know, when Jesus, I mean, how many times do we need to see this where Jesus said, look, if you have faith, what? The grain of a mustard seed. You could say to this mountain, get up and go into the sea, and it would do that. Um, it doesn't take a lot of faith, and the, and the reason it doesn't take a lot of faith is the object of our faith. If the object Amen. of your faith is Jesus, then even the faith, the grain of a mustard seed, is going to be able to do great things. So I don't know. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like Jesus was, was chastising Peter here? No, I, I don't. Okay. Um, I, I don't I either. It, I, I think, think it was affectionate. Totally. I yeah. think this is like, you know, a comment that you would make to your to your children. Right. Um, but I also do think that it's something, you know, where where Peter is always trying to to hoist himself up as the great one. Right. You know, I do think this is a gentle nudge from Jesus to remind him, like, you know, you're you're growing. Right. You're growing. Um you know, for some reason it comes into my mind that one of my, my son Jacob's preschool teachers nicknamed she was from um South Africa. And she nicknamed him Chicken, which stuck, by the way, in our house. So every once in a while, I'll still call him Chicken. Okay. Which he loves being a, and going into fifth grade now. Um, but there's this like affectionate sense behind that. You know, it's like get in line. You're, yeah. you're one of the chickens. Get in, get in the line, you know. Um, but I, I see it as something that's like that. It's just yeah. very, very kind. It's, 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 affectionate like you said like you'd say to a child right. uh, some kind of a nickname that's what well that's what i thought of you know yeah. i mean i thought of my kids when they would run too fast and trip over something and i'd have to clean up the skinned knee i'd be saying knucklehead you know yeah. why did yeah. you do that you know but i'm not saying that my child was not intelligent i'm just you know it's a term it is genuinely a term of endearment it's like you goofball come here yep you know, that yep. kind of thing. So I really, I really look at it that way. So w when people, because again, owe you a little faith, I think that that can be taken, you know, can be construed, and in this case, misconstrued by people who are reading the story to say Peter was somebody that didn't. Let me remind you, folks, there were a number of men in that boat. One of them, one of them said, "Lord, command me to come to you," and climbed <laughs> out of the boat. So when you start to, to look at Peter and say Peter is somebody that has little faith, Peter had way more faith than anybody yeah. else in that boat had. Yeah. Yeah. That's why Peter is my man. I, I'm, you know, I, I love Paul's writing. I love Paul's teaching. No, no, you know, there's no secret there. I'm a Paul fanboy. I really love, I'm looking forward to having many conversations with Paul someday. Um, but in terms of the person in scripture that I identify with the most that makes my heart like, oh God, you can use even me. It's Peter. <laughs> Because yeah. I'm the same way, man. I want to run in and fix everything. I want to run in and make the pronouncement. And then I do something terrible, and I'm standing there feeling like a fool. And God comes to you in the story of Peter and says, look, this was my guy. You're, yeah. my, you know, you're my child. It's okay. Yeah, the tender patience that Jesus ex extends to Peter again and again is, is one of my favorites. Yeah. And one of the things, like we talked about this on in the last episode, how Jesus never does – kooky miracles as parlor tricks, right? Right. So one of the things that I love that's behind this is when Jesus comes out and he's walking on top of the water, they would have had a very, very clear understanding back in, in that day that waters represented judgment. We've talked about that a lot right. on this, this show. Death. Yeah. Death and judgment, right. Right. And so when Jesus comes and he's walking on top of the water, they might not be thinking, oh, the symbolism is clearly death and judgment. They probably are not putting that together. They're thinking right. here's something on top of water. But when we read that, you know, we think of all the stories going back to the beginning where 
God uses waters to bring judgment. You know, mm-hmm. going back to the flood sure. and the crossing of the Red Sea and Jonah, um, Psalm 69, where David cries out, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I mm-hmm. sink in deep mire. There's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Still to this day, we talk about how I'm in deep trouble, right? right? right, right. Isaiah 43, where it talks about when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Or I'm in over my head. I mean, that's another reference there. I'm in over my head. And so here you see Jesus coming and he is treading over the emblem of death and judgment. And that sends a very clear message. You know, here's here's one who has mastery over this. And then what I love is when he looks at Peter, like it would be understandable for God to be able to defy the laws of nature, right? Mm-hmm. By walking on water. That sure. makes sense to us. But what's crazy is Peter gets out of the boat, and when he sets his eyes, when he sets his faith on Christ, now all of a sudden Peter can tread atop the emblem of judgment. So if you're thinking about the picture of salvation here, you know, here you have Jesus who's the mastery over over the emblem of death and judgment and by faith alone, right? Peter gets out of the boat and he now walks atop the emblem of death and judgment until he sees the wind and the waves and he begins to fear. When he takes his eyes off of Christ, he begins to sink. And so I think in that story, it's pointing us to this idea of um, faith's power to triumph over death and judgment. And even when Peter's faith falters, one of my very favorite parts of this is a very simple prayer, Lord, save me. Three three words, yep. (laughs) And this gets back to that whole idea of you know, faith versus the, the the intensity of your faith versus the object of your faith. Mm-hmm. Peter's faith got him to walk on the water for a little bit. Yep. And then his faith failed. Right. And he began to sink. But it was the object of his faith when he cries out, Lord, save me. My faith is not strong enough. Jesus was. Right? Right. So Jesus rescues him, extends the hand, grabs him, and pulls him up out of the water. Um because he, it was the object of Peter's faith mm-hmm. that rescues him. Yeah, I, I do think that's such a big part of it. You know, when Peter took his eyes off Christ, like you said, mm-hmm. that's the moment. And when we're in the midst of that storm, you know, even when, when we have that vision that God is with us in the storm, we need to keep our eyes on him. Because when we take our eyes off him, that's that's when the storm starts to overwhelm us. But yeah, I love that idea that. Even when I am failing to be faithful, right? Even even when I turn my focus, my gaze away from Christ, his gaze is never off of me. So in this moment, Jesus is faithful to Peter when Peter Peter's faith is faltering. I like the word uh, immediately there in verse 31. Because, yeah. Be, well, because of the fact that it doesn't say, as an object lesson, Jesus allowed Peter's head to go beneath the waves. <laughs> It's like as soon as he began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me, it said that Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him because at that point there was nothing – Peter. what Peter needed to learn was that Jesus wasn't going to let him sink. Yeah. The lesson was no longer about Peter's faith. It was about God's faithfulness at that point. I'm not yeah. going to let you sink, Peter. You know. Amen. So uh, verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now, that's just one sentence, just that one sentence in that verse. But I want you to think about this, folks, for just a second, is that everything that Sam and I have been talking about, all of the impressions and the visions and the and the conversations and come and I'm coming and I'm sinking and save me, all of that happened while the storm was still raging. Mm-hmm. The storm didn't stop until Jesus got Peter back to the boat. 
Um, I, you know, just <laughs> which I, at that moment, you know, Peter's going really. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I would be. I would be like, really, Lord, you just you couldn't do that before I got out of the, the boat. <laughs> um, but I think that you know, obviously, Jesus could have Sam. He could have stopped the storm at any point. He could have said, you know, when Peter said, "Command me to come to you," Jesus could have said, "Sure, hang on a second. Let me let me calm this down. Peace be still. <laughs> All right, now, Peter, come on out." He didn't do that. He allowed Peter to get out of the boat. In the storm, knowing again, Jesus. After one of the things we have to remember about the actions that Jesus takes, the things he says and the things that he does, are those things are done with foreknowledge. Like he knows what's going to happen. He knew when Peter came out of the boat that Peter's faith was going to falter. He knew that he's Jesus. He knew everything, sure. and so when Peter began to falter, he caught him. So the thing we have to take from that is that. Jesus didn't stop the storm because he didn't want to stop the storm. He wanted Peter to get out in the storm with that kind of faith. He wanted Peter's faith to be challenged so that he could show his faithfulness toward Peter. So there was all these things that were happening, you know, were all happening while the storm was raging. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then in verse 33, it says, and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Um, one of the notes I was reading, and I went back and looked, and I'm not, you know, some of the things with these gospel things, it's like, I'm not sure about the timelines of when certain things happen in relation to parallel passages and things in other gospels, other records of it. But this was the first time in the book of Matthew where it says they worshiped him, that idea that, that hmm. certainly they recognized his power and his divinity and his importance and everything else. But at this point, they worshiped him. And what was so important to me as I read that is I found myself asking myself, because I have these conversations, Mark, you know. So I asked myself, what do I do when the storm is over? Because, you know, the thing is, the storm always ends. Now, sometimes the storm doesn't end in this life. There are times when we are going to be in a storm that does not end until we pass through that veil, right? And we go to the next life. Because the bottom line is there are no storms in heaven. I'm gonna. Right. I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say there are no storms in heaven. Perhaps gentle rain showers someday, if needed for plants, but there are no <laughs> storms in heaven. And so sometimes the storms we find ourselves in, Sam, don't abate in this life. They carry us through that veil. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times they do stop. You know, we we have these storms we're in, and the storm does stop. And what do I do? I'm asking myself this: What do I do? When the storm is over, do I stop right then and worship God? Even if I've cried out to God from the middle of the storm, even if I've had a sense that God is with me in the storm, do I then worship him when the storm is over? Or do I just sit back with this great sense of relief and think, wow, I'm so glad that's over? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're called to, to worship him. I yeah. Mean, even, even in the midst of the storm, there's the, the famous song from Casting Crowns, right? Yeah. Um, Which was, by the way, if anybody follows our personal worship, that was your song for day five. I do include a song go. for every day. Praise you in the storm. <laughs> it's a great. It's a great song. I love that song. You know, he's the, the, in the one song says, "I'm called to say Amen, and it's still raining." I love mm-hmm. that line in the in the opening verse. It's a great song. Um, but yeah, they they worshipped him. I mean, that was their response when the storm was over, when peace was there. Their response was to worship him, and I think that's cool. I think there's, you know, in in some measure, all of these life experiences that we go through, or, you know, the Bible tells us this, Paul tells us this, that they're going to amplify how much we adore and worship Christ for all of eternity. It's going mm-hmm. to increase the weight of glory that's coming on the other side of the veil. Um, and so in some sense, you know, when you think about this storm, this picture of the storm, um, why did God allow all of this? It was for that moment at the end where they would fall down and worship him and say, you know, truly you are the son of God, you know, because what he's doing is he's giving them a gift that for the rest of their lives, because each of these apostles are going to go through (laughs) way more vicious storms. I mean, if you read the traditions of what these guys go off after the resurrection and the tortures and the things that they have to go through in spreading the gospel, they're going to face far worse storms here, but they do it in a way that shocks the world. They have utter peace. Why? Because Jesus has walked them slowly and discipling them and recognizing that in all of these individual storms that he walks with them, 
and that they can trust that in every storm he's right beside them that he there's no, the storm's not by accident that he is doing something glorious through this that he is going to show some great victory on the other side of it even if it's not in this life and he's given them that confidence as a gift and i think you know when when they realize at the end of this oh my gosh truly this you are the son of god that is the gift, you right. know, and, and you see so many stories involving Jesus where he flat out says, you know, this is a tragic thing, but I'm allowing it now because it is going to reveal the glory of God. It is going to produce something beautiful on the other side of this for my people. Mm. Um, you see that in when, when, G, when the disciples come and they say, hey, why, this man who was born blind why was he born that way? Is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus says, no, like this was for the glory of God. There's something unique about him and what I'm going to do in him and through him that is going to be a blessing to the kingdom and it's going to bring glory to God. Or when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he delays going there for two days. Lazarus dies and what Jesus says again and again, this is being done so that in the end, God will be glorified and many will come to faith through this. Like we can't always see the ending, Mm -hmm. but when we go through the storm with the Lord enough and he trains us each time when we get done, you're like, oh my gosh, he was faithful again. You know, and it's like slowly we're being trained. You know what? You really are Mm -hmm. the son of God. Well, hopefully we get down the road long enough, that'll be a real source of great peace to us mm-hmm. in the middle of the storms once we finally take that message to heart. Yeah. Well, that is a good word, and it is one that we will end on for today's uh, podcast. Uh, folks, uh, I hope that you've enjoyed this study in the life of Peter. We've got a lot more of this to come. Uh, hopefully, Sam's <laughs> medicine will kick in, and, he'll, and he will recover well enough to be able to get his full voice back and uh, uh, have his uh, have his ear uh, be able to hear properly again. That's uh, something of concern. Um, But we do hope you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been a profitable time for you, that you've learned something from it. Um, If you would like to correspond with Sam and myself to ask a question or make a comment, if there's something that we've said today that has sparked something in you that uh, you'd like to take up with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com and that's also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts or on Spotify as well as in our Rio Vista Church smartphone app which is available for both iPhone and Android devices. We look forward to having you join us next time when we'll be talking about Peter's confession, who do you say that I am? That's going to be a great conversation to have also. We look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.